Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4a. You may follow along on the screen or on your phones. Hear now the word of God. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, New Mercy Palisades Church. Is this thing working? We're okay? Okay. Uh, so my name is Key. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at the church, and I'll be uh, delivering the message for you guys today. So today we are uh, continuing our series titled The Potter and the Clay. Uh, just to get everybody up to speed, uh, I mentioned uh, last week that one of the literary devices that the Bible uses fairly often is the, the metaphor. Okay? You see it actually pretty much all over the Bible. Now, the reason why the Bible uses metaphors is because they're actually pretty great at helping us get a better understanding of something. You know, the images that these metaphors use, uh, often they do a really good job of, of capturing our imaginations and helping us grab onto uh, and see truths like we, we've never seen them before. Uh, and so contrary to what a lot of people believe, the Bible actually uses metaphors to get us closer to reality and to truth, not further away. A lot of people mistakenly believe metaphors and parables, they take us they detach us from reality, but in fact, when you see Jesus using parables and metaphors, they get us closer to truth about ourselves, about the world, and about God. So the image we're exploring in the series is that, is that of the potter and the clay. The potter and the clay. Uh, this is actually a metaphor that the Bible uses a number of times across both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a very rich metaphor, uh, and it teaches us a lot about God uh, and ourselves and about faith, uh, which is the theme for this year. Uh, and so we thought it would be worth our time to explore, explore it a little bit, right? Hence this series. Uh, Dr. Ferris, uh, our very special guest speaker uh, a couple of weeks ago, he kicked us off with a, with a great illustrated talk. Uh, and then last week, I continued the series by talking about the potter, God, uh, and how he is our creator, right? how he is our creator and the impact that that has on our faith. Today, uh, I'm just going to uh, move the metaphor forward a, a little bit and, and talk about commitment, okay, commitment. So after a, uh, a potter picks the piece of clay that they're going to work with, uh, I mentioned last week that they actually already have in their mind's eye what that unformed piece of clay is going to become. What's the next thing the potter has to do then in order to make that clay into the beautiful piece of pottery that's in his mind? Well, what, what's the next thing that the potter has to do? Uh, they have to attach it to the potter's wheel. Right now, if you were uh, you were at doctor's, uh, Dr. Ferris's talk or, or his, his demonstration, and or if you've ever seen an expert potter at work, how do they go about attaching that piece of clay to the wheel? Do they just kindly gently place it on the wheel? Is that how they do it? No. What they do is they literally smack the clay onto the wheel. It's actually a pretty uh, pretty violent motion. Okay, with one swift of the arm, bam! Right, the clay is on the wheel. Now, why do they do it that way? They do it that way because the clay has to be firmly attached to the potter's wheel 
for the potter to do their work. Basically, in that one swift motion, what the potter is doing is they're committing to that piece of clay. The potter is firmly attaching the clay onto their wheel, and nothing from that point forward is going to deter them from making that clay into what the potter wants it to be. Once the clay is on the wheel, the potter, I mean, you know, you've seen the process, right? What they do is they they hunch over this piece of clay. They lean into it almost as if they're being protective of it. And then then they massage it, they pour water over it, they center it on the wheel, and slowly but surely, using everything at their disposal, their fingers, their hands, their arms, all their tools, they make it into that beautiful vessel that they saw in their minds. They commit to that piece of clay. They don't take it off the wheel until it becomes what the potter wills. You know, uh, this actually reminds me of one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes this. He writes, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Actually, right before he says that, he says he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will not stop. He will not take you off the wheel until he is finished. He is the master potter, and he will finish the work that he started in you. Okay, that's the commitment that he's made to you. But here's the thing with commitments, right? Commitments are only, only as good as the person who makes them, right? We know plenty of people who, in, in one swift motion, right, they'll make what feels like an ironclad commitment to you. They, they, they reassure us with their words, you know, that they're, that they're in it for the long haul. But when the hard times come, when things don't turn out the way that they had expected or wanted, uh, they, they bail, How do I know that God won't bail on me? What if I'm more broken? What if I'm more vile and sinful than other pieces of clay? I'm sure some of you have thought that about your heart. You think about, you know, what goes on in there, you're like, dude, I'm pretty messed up. What if I continue to sin? How do I know that he's going to keep working on me? How do I know that he won't find me hopeless and give up and take me off that wheel and throw me in the trash? So, I actually have a a favorite biblical word, uh, besides Jesus, of course, Um, and that word is the word chesed, chesed, okay? I won't say it like that for the rest of the sermon. Uh, I'll say chesed. Um, Clearly, it's not an English word. Uh, If you can actually put that slide up, that first slide, you guys see it? Okay. Clearly not an English word. It's a Hebrew word, uh, and it's a word that you'll find being used fairly often in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of translators, uh, they actually have a hard time translating this word, but it's not because it's a difficult word to understand. It's more because it's such a massive word in terms of meaning. Okay, if we can throw the next slide up there. Can I see it? Okay. Depending on the context, hesed can be translated as any of those English words or phrases. Okay, so it has a really, really large, I would say, spectrum of meaning. But there is a core. Okay, you can take the slide off. Okay? The main cluster of ideas uh, that biblical hesed orbits around are the ideas of love and grace and kindness and mercy, 
along with other important ideas like passion and faithfulness and loyalty and persistence and perseverance, okay? And so some translators, what they do is they take all this together and they believe a good translation of hesed is loyal love, okay? A love that is deeply loyal. Uh, my, my personal favorite is steadfast love, right? A number of English translations translate hesed as that. Steadfast love, a love that perseveres and will not let go no matter what. Now, while this word hesed is, is sometimes used for people, its theological center of gravity in the Old Testament revolves around God. As this one author puts it, he says, Hesed wraps up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Hesed is one of the Lord's most treasured characteristics. Now, more than trying to explain Hesed to you, uh, this is the kind of word that needs to be felt in order to be understood. Part of the reason why, why it's so hard to translate is because uh, the word is so visceral, right? And experiences and emotions like that, visceral emotions, right? You know, they're, they're not easy to capture in just a few words. And so a better vehicle to, to help us understand words like hesed is through story. Through story. Okay, so here's my, here's my favorite example of hesed in the Bible. Uh, now, believe it or not, this example uh, isn't about God's hesed, uh, but I think it captures what God's heart is like perfectly. So, so let me share it with you. So in the Old Testament, uh, there's a short book called the Book of Ruth, right? Some of you might be familiar with it. Uh, and at the start of that book, there's this family, uh, and they're just, they're just really in a bad situation. Uh, a famine has hit their region, uh, and it's a really severe famine, so, so they're starving. And so what this man named uh, Elimelech does is he takes his family, right? He takes his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, and he takes them to this uh, region called Moab to survive and to try to make a new life for themselves. Uh, but when they get there, Elimelech dies, and so do his two sons. And so Naomi is just left in this strange land by herself. Okay? The only people who have any connection to her are her deceased son's wives, Ruth and Orpah, okay? who are Moabite women. So Naomi is just in a really bad place. She's a widow in that time in a strange land with no sons and no husband. That, that's, that's a formula for, for a very, very difficult life back then. Well, soon after this, Naomi hears that things have actually improved, improved a little bit in Israel. Uh, so she decides to go back. Uh, and she tells Ruth and Orpah that they should stay behind because life would actually be very hard for them if they followed her to Israel. Uh, and so they embrace, you know, there's this moment in the text where they, they embrace, uh, and they're weeping, uh, and Orpah, you know, stays behind. But Ruth refuses to stay behind. She will not leave Naomi's side. The text actually says that Ruth clung, that's the word that he uses, clung to Naomi. Okay? And Naomi, you know, obviously she tries to talk her out of it, you're crazy, you want to come to Israel, you know, that's not a good idea, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but this is how Ruth replies, if we can throw the next slide up there. This is what she says, some of the most powerful words in all of the Bible. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. 
when Naomi realized that Ruth has deter uh, had, was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Okay, that's what the text says. And the rest of the book of Ruth is about how Ruth does exactly what she says. She stays by Naomi's side all the way to the end of her life. That's hesed. That's steadfast love. And that's the image we should have in our minds when we think of God's hesed toward us. You know, um, the name of our church, New Mercy, uh, that's actually based on a hesed passage. If we can throw the next slide up there, this is from the book of Lamentations. It says, the steadfast love, you see that? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. See, it brings out the persistence of that love. His mercies never come to an end, and that's where we got new mercy from. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When you think of the steadfast love of God, the image you should have in your mind is that of Ruth never leaving Naomi's side, no matter what. That type of faithfulness is what you should have in your mind. Now, when, you, when a person like Ruth makes a commitment to you, right, when you see Ruth and you see what she's done and she makes a commitment to you, how, how do you feel? How do you feel? You feel much more confident, right, that they will keep their promises to you, right? Ruth proved herself through her actions to Naomi that her love is, in fact, hesed, a steadfast, deeply loyal love. So the question is, what about God? Has he proven himself like Ruth has? Well, the only way to see if God's love is in fact hesed is to look. Has he followed through? Has God followed through on his commitments? Well, we get to do exactly that, actually, through today's text. If you look in today's text, uh, the one that Dave read for us, God actually makes a promise to Abraham. Uh, it says Abram, Abraham, you know, God changes his name later. I'm just going to go back and forth. And Sarah's his wife, Sarai, was her previous name. So just, I'm going to use those interchangeably. Just don't mind that, okay? God actually makes a promise to Abraham that, uh, that we can test and see, uh, that we can test to see if he followed through by looking at history. We can actually test God. Did, did God follow through in this commitment to Abraham? In fact, God actually doesn't just make a promise in today's text. He actually makes a covenant. Basically, God says, if you follow me, I will bless you, and you will become a nation. And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Okay? God makes Abraham that promise, that covenant. But then three chapters later, Right, what do we see? Three chapters later, Abraham and Sarah, the, we find that they haven't been able to conceive a child, right? and they're getting pretty old. And you can't have a future nation right, without progeny. And so Abraham has doubts. Well, when God sees this, he tries to reassure Abraham. He says, this is what, this, these are exact words that God uses. He takes Abraham out. He says, look up, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them so shall your offspring be. Okay? But this time, God goes one step further and goes beyond just words. So after God says that to Abraham right, in this chapter, something really weird happens. After he says, you know, I'm going to make you know, your, your children like the stars in the sky, something really weird happens in the text. Uh, here's what it says. Let me read it to you from chapter 15. If you can throw the next slide up there, I think the next couple of slides maybe. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. 
Abram uh, brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What's going on here? Uh, well, for those of you who've been going through our, our Lent devotional, you, you already know. Uh, but for the rest of us, this is what's going on. See, in the ancient Near East, uh, what we see God doing here, this is actually one of the ways that two parties made covenants with each other, made contracts with each other. Okay? What they would do is they would cut these animals in half, right, and they would line them up in two rows, and then they would walk between them. Now, as weird as that sounds, I mean, that sounds positively psychotic, right? Sounds crazy. As weird as that sounds, why they, did it, why they did it this way actually makes a whole lot of sense. See, by walking between these cut-up animals, what each party is saying is this. They're saying, if I don't keep up my part of the agreement, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Now, those of you who've ever been, entered into an agreement uh, with, say, a contractor uh, or with someone who didn't hold up their end of the bargain, this sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, just by superstition alone, I think people would end up keeping their promises a little bit better if we did it this way. So anyway, this is how they made covenants back then, okay? But here's the thing. Notice in this instance, right? You, I mean, both parties are supposed to walk through, right? But notice in this instance, only one party walks through the animals, for not both of them, only one does. Okay? And the party that walks through is not Abraham, it's God. You know, the smoking fire pot and the, and the flaming torch, those are what one preacher calls the quote-unquote emblems of God's actual glory presence. You know, fire and smoke in the Old Testament, they often indicate the presence of God. Right? You see this when the Israelites are walking in the desert or wandering in the desert. Right? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Okay, those were the indicators of God's presence. Or look at Moses. Where does Moses encounter the presence of God? In a burning bush. Right? So God is going through the, the, these animals. God is the only party in this covenant that's walking through these animals. And this would have been absolutely stunning to Abraham. Because by doing this, this is the mind-boggling thing that God is saying, as Tim Keller puts it, if we can throw the next slide up there, this is what God is saying. He's saying, God is saying, Abram, I will bless you. No matter whether I fail, I will pay the penalty. No matter whether you fail, I will pay the penalty. I will make myself accountable to pay the penalty if I should fail my part of the covenant, but I make myself accountable to pay the penalties should you fail. I will absorb the cost for either of us, including you, and I will be torn apart if I fail, or I will be torn apart if you fail. If you fail, I will take the consequences. This is a one-sided covenant. Unbelievable. I don't know if Tim Keller said it that way, but... <laughs> this covenant that God makes here, commentators and theologians call it the everlasting covenant. Okay? God is saying that he himself will make sure this covenant is accomplished no matter what happens, no matter how long it takes. This is God's self-commitment to Abraham and to us because the blessing he accomplishes for Abraham will become the blessing of the nations, which includes us. What is this? 
This is Hesed. Right? This is the character of God. Now, you're like, but Pastor K, you still haven't proven that God's love is in fact Hesed. Right? Up to this point, it's still words and commitments made. I don't care if God cut up all these animals and walked through them. Does God actually follow through in history? Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look at history. Humanity has been breaking the laws of God from the very beginning, right? If you look in your life, you've been sinning pretty much every day of your life. You're breaking God's heart on a daily basis. Yet what do we see on the cross? When Jesus dies on the cross, what do we see? Does God penalize us? No, precisely the opposite. We see God penalizing himself. See, the same God who covenants with Abraham that he will absorb the penalty even if Abraham fails, that same God treats the rest of us in exactly the same way. Even though we failed, God was torn apart like those, those animals, not us. You know, the fact that the cross actually happened shows us that God is not hesed only in description, but he's hesed in action. He has, in fact, proven himself. You know, plenty of people can say that they're they're hesed, you know, they can say that about themselves, but the only way we know that they're truly hesed is if they follow through, and God followed through. God kept his covenant to Abraham, even though it took hundreds and, and centuries. He kept his covenant with Abraham. He says, I will make you into a nation, God said. And God did. Isaac was born, and the nation of Israel became a reality. All the people of the world will be blessed through you, God said. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, through him, all the people of the world now have access to the forgiveness and love of God. They can all be children of God now. So, in fact, all the people have been blessed. He kept, God kept all of that covenant. Okay, God follows through on his promises, but he does even better. Because when we fail, he doesn't punish us, but he rips himself apart, which is exactly what he said he would do for Abraham. Okay, it all comes together on the cross. This, my friends, is Hesed. Now, why is it so important? Why is it important that God follows through? Okay, well, pretty obvious, right? But I think it's still worth stating. So one of the, uh, the covenants that modern people enter into nowadays uh, is the covenant of marriage. Okay? It's one of the few covenants that kind of have been preserved, right? And one of the covenants that modern people enter into is the covenant of marriage. You know, just a couple days ago, I, I, uh, I went to this beautiful wedding out in Brooklyn. It was a beautiful wedding. Uh, and I got to listen to, I would say, some of the most moving wedding vows I've heard in a long time. Usually, you know, when they write their own wedding vows, it's really cheesy and lame and stuff. But these were really, really good. Uh, but I was, as I was listening to them, I couldn't help but think to myself, yeah, words are great. Promises are great. These are really pretty words, but are you going to follow through? Are you going to follow through? Promises mean nothing in the end of, at the end of the day unless you follow through. You know, just the other day, uh, I looked at my spreadsheet where I tracked the weddings that I've performed over the years. Uh, I, I counted, finally, made a final official count. I've actually officiated exactly... Uh, 50 weddings, right? I'll have 51 next week. And uh, I feel like, I, I, you know, I told people I've done more than that, but it's because I've been to, I feel like, literally hundreds of weddings, okay? But as, as I was thinking over the weddings that I performed and, and how those couples are doing now, and when I think about all the couples that I've counseled and when I look at all the marriages that, that, that I see around me, 
there is a pattern that is undeniable, okay? When a husband and a wife, when they actually follow through on their covenant promises, you know, not perfectly, of course, you know, they mess up, they hurt each other, you know, the vows actually don't say they're going to be perfect. What they say is that they're going to stand by their side and work to love them in the midst of the hurt and the mistakes and the circumstances day in and day out, no matter what. That's hesed, right? The couples that follow through on their hesed promises, what they do is they always come back to the table, they're always willing to learn, and they always find a way to work it out. And what I see in those couples, and what you probably see, is that each of the spouses in those kinds of marriages, they feel much more secure and confident, not only about their marriage, but also themselves. See, the faithfulness that each spouse has shown the other has made each of them feel a a sturdiness in their relationship that allows them to grow not only as a couple, but as a person. You know, wives in, in secure relationships, they feel freer. They feel they can grow in life. There's a blossoming that happens when the husband actually shows them hesed. The exact same thing happens when the wives do the same for their husbands. But see, in the couples where the spouses don't follow through on their hesed promises, we see the exact opposite. Right? In those marriages, and I've seen too many of them, oftentimes the spouses feel insecure. They're less confident in their marriage and in themselves, in fact. And this literally cascades and affects everything in their life, their mood, their mental health, their other relationships, their faith, their outlook on life, bitterness, defensiveness, anger, depression, anxiety, jealousy, and envy. In, marriage, in, in a marriage where the spouses fail at hesed, this is actually what you see. Basically, the healthiest marriages I've seen are because the spouses have shown hesed to each other. Now, of course, you know, there are complexities, you know, sometimes one spouse can show, has said they can show steadfast love, but the other spouse, out of their own sin and dysfunction and brokenness, uh, can abuse that and so on, okay? But the general pattern I've seen is that actually following through on your has said promises, that builds much more confidence and security and health in a marriage because each person trusts that the other person is going to follow through. It's a circle, right? It's a good one, though. It's a reinforcing one. The reason why it's so critical that Jesus went to the cross is because it it shows us in an undeniable way that he is a God who will follow through on his covenant promises no matter the cost to himself. The cross shows that God not only loves us, but that he will always put himself on the line to follow through on that love. And what the resurrection shows us is that he actually has the power to follow through on that love. It's because we have this kind of God that Paul can say in Romans 8 this, if we can throw the next slide up there. This is what Paul says, some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture compared next to Ruth's. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced... When Paul says that, he doesn't mean that lightly. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul can say this even as he suffers. By the way, he he suffers pretty badly, Paul, if you read his life. 
Paul still says this, even as he suffers, because he's seen Jesus follow through. God will not fail him, and he knows this because of the cross. You know, a few verses before the ones I just read you, this is what Paul essentially says. He says, if God would do that, what I see on the cross, what makes us think that he, that what, what makes us think anything will keep him from following through on his love in our lives? If he would do that, what makes us think he won't follow through in our lives? Even death cannot stop him. To the degree that you see that, to the degree that you see God following through on his covenant love, his hesed on the cross, to that degree you will see confidence and security and faith growing in your life. Drilling that truth down into your heart will grow your faith like nothing else. Do you see how that works? God's hesed is this foundation for your life. And when you know this foundation, when you really truly have this in your heart, what does it do? It makes you feel secure and confident in that love, and so you can grow. Now, what if you didn't have this hesed? What if he didn't prove to you his love for you on the cross? You wouldn't know that he loves you, and you'd, there'd be insecurity, right? Frantically trying to, you know, prove yourself to God, and you wouldn't grow. That's the way it works. Now, let me just, you know, just, just a brief aside. You know, when I say this stuff, you're like, oh, that sounds so nice, Pastor Kate. Look, I confess to you, I struggle with this. You know, I've struggled with anxiety for a, a large portion of my life. But what I've learned is over the years, as I've just, no matter what, even though I still feel insecure and things like that, I keep drilling this away in my heart. And over decades, slowly but surely, my my faith has grown. So I'm not saying it's easy. But if you do do it, it makes a huge difference in your life. Let me close with a modern-day example of Hesed. So in the movie Hacksaw Ridge, uh, some of you guys hopefully saw it, uh, there's a man named Desmond Doss. Right? He grew up right around the time of World War II. Uh, and after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, he actually enlists in the army as a medic. But despite being in the army, right, despite being in the army, he refuses to carry a weapon because of his faith. Okay? He doesn't believe in killing people. Okay? Now, as you can imagine, his commanding officers are like, you're an idiot, right? They don't like this, and so they try to get him kicked out of the army. They accuse him of mental illness. Uh, they haze him, right? They give him a lot more work to do. Uh, other soldiers, actually, one night, they beat him while he was in bed really badly. But not only does Desmond refuse to leave, he refuses to name his attackers, right? That's just the kind of guy that he is. Now, let's fast forward to the actual war. Right? So they're in the middle of an insane battle against the Japanese forces on, on what's called the Maid uh, Escarpment, okay, Hacksaw Ridge. Right? Uh, and the American forces, they're experiencing heavy, heavy losses. In fact, the Japanese are literally driving them off the ridge. The Hacksaw Ridge is a cliff at the end. The Japanese are literally driving them off. Um, well, at one point, Desmond, he's still alive, uh, and he, he hears the cries of his fellow soldiers on the battlefield, all of them wounded and dying. But instead of cutting and running and saving himself, what he does is he runs headlong into enemy fire. He grabs a soldier, puts him on his shoulders, carries him, and then when he gets to the edge of the cliff, he finds a rope and he uses that rope to lower that soldier down the cliff to safety. That's not easy to do, friends. That's a very different... He's got to be really strong to do that. 
After he does that for one soldier, he goes back and he finds another wounded soldier and does the same. And he does this over and over and literally saves the lives of dozens of soldiers. And each time he's praying to God that God would give him the strength just to save one more. You know, this movie is actually based on a true story. Uh, in fact, the real Desmond Dross, he refused for years to allow Hollywood to make a movie about his life because he didn't want them to misrepresent his faith or sensationalize his actions. So most of what you actually see in the movie uh, happened. In fact, at the end of the movie, there's a scene where Desmond Dross is taken away on a stretcher after being wounded, right? If you watch the movie, you see he's being taken away on a stretcher. You know what actually happened in real life? Desmond what he actually did was he got off the stretcher and he let another soldier who was wounded more severely take his place on that stretcher. And after that, he treats this soldier, even though he himself is wounded, who took his place on the stretcher. And then after he does that, Desmond get, actually gets shot by a sniper, which fractures Desmond's arm. And so they're all, they all scatter. And after being alone for five hours, he crawls to safety. This is what actually happened. That's the true story. And Mel Gibson, the director of the movie, he said that he left that out of the movie because he was afraid the audience wouldn't believe it. Amazing. This is real-life hesed that Desmond Dawes showed his fellow brothers in arms. He actually won the Medal of Honor for rescuing 75 of his fellow soldiers. But here's the thing. What Jesus did is he didn't just save his fellow soldiers. He didn't just save the people on his team. No, he also goes to the enemy, and he takes their wounded, and he rescues them, and then he dies for them. You know, in God's story, right? In God's story, we're not Desmond Doss. You watch that movie, you're like, oh, yeah, God, I'd be like Desmond Doss. No, you're not Desmond Doss. We're not even the fellow soldiers. We are, in God's story, we are the enemies. Romans 5.10 says, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We were disobedient clay. We were actually shards of glass cutting up God's hands. In fact, we were soldiers shooting back at Jesus. But he still keeps his hands on us. And he still comes to rescue us. That's Hesed. Let's go back to the verse from Philippians that I mentioned at the start of my sermon. Right? That verse where Paul says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Hopefully that takes on a whole new meaning now. This God of covenant, loyal, never tiring love, this God of Hesed, this master potter, who bloodied himself on the cross to follow through for us, he will see his clay through to the end. He will make sure it becomes the masterpiece that he sees in his heart. You know, one of the things that I learned about potters uh, that I just love, I did a lot of research on potters. One of the things I, I, I learned about potters that I just love is that when, when potters work on their clay, they actually get clay all over themselves. One expert potter, she actually says that she literally, even after she cleans up herself, she literally finds clay on her body throughout the day, even after showering, right, in the deep crevices of her hands and, and her arms and her elbows, you know, random bits in her hair and her clothes and in her face. You know, when God was working on us, he, 
our sin got all over him. In fact, he let that happen deliberately. You can throw the last slide up there. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin upon himself. He made himself a mess so that he could make us beautiful. That's Hesed. Set your heart on that, and your faith will grow. Okay, if we can have the praise and come up, if we can bow our heads. Um, like I said you know, earlier, look, I've struggled in life. Um, not nearly as much as some other people. You know, I've had friends die. You know, recently we have somebody pass away who we really cared about. Uh, we see things happening in the world. Look, I know it's not easy, okay? But death, even death and even tragedy cannot stop God from following through. You know, one of the things it says in Revelation is that he will come one day and that he will wipe our tears away. Now, that doesn't mean that God is literally going to take his cosmic finger and wipe your tears away. What he's saying is those things that caused you tears, he will wipe them away. He will undo them as if they had not happened. C.S. Lewis talks about it, and so is Jero Tolkien, that he will reverse the damage that we see in history. He will follow through. We see on the cross that we, he will. We see on the resurrection that he has the power to. So even though it's hard, keep pressing on. Keep pressing this down into your heart, this hesed that you see on the cross. Okay? And it will build a foundation for you upon which you can grow in your life and in your faith. Okay? So those of you who are struggling, just say, you know, hey, God, I don't feel it. I don't believe this hesed right now. Help me to, help me to know this at a deeper way, in a deeper way. Okay, and if there's any other way you feel like the scripture or the, uh, the message spoke to you, please let's take, take a moment and talk to God. He's hearing, he's listening to you right now, uh, and he will answer. Okay, let's pray.